welcome back to the Movie Bible Podcast. This week, you've got all three of us. It's myself, Nick, and Brennan. Um, we've got a uh, pretty sobering note to start off with uh, before we jump into kind of the usual uh, usual topics. Um, Rip Quibby. Uh, <laughs> 2020 to 2020. Um, Quibi, Quibi is officially being shut down. Um, it's it's a streaming service that nobody was ever really on board with from the beginning. It's pretty ambitious, if you ask me, to just... They launched with a ton of original content. I mean, they had shows with people like Christy Teigen and, and Liam Hemsworth, and, and I think Sophie Turner had a show. And it was just filled with celebrities and these little... Uh, quick bites little 10 minute episodes and they offered 90 days for free and they just could not get people to subscribe and so it's been pretty definite (laughs) that this um streaming service has not been in good standing ever since it launched i think they peaked at about 5.6 million subscribers and that was with the free trial signups they offered which was a 90 day free trial in the month of april um, and they lost 92% of those 90-day free trial uh, subscribers after that free trial ended. Um, so Quibi's just been in the tank, and they've officially given it the axe this week and are just trying to figure out what to do with all that content. Yeah, it's <laughs> it was kind of weird with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg at the beginning of this. With a, he kind of like was puffing out his chest saying they were going to change the way that content is and every time you hear people do that that's always like a definitely a time to stop and scratch your head and think about aren't these people just like talking out of their ass and with quibi it kind of seems like they were a little bit um i think in theory i kind of like the idea of quibi and it's funny because i feel like i've spent way like far more time talking about the idea of quibi than I've never actually watched anything that quibi has which i guess is just in of itself one of their biggest issues but yeah, it's it was weird from the start because they were all like, "We, you have to come to our app and like you can't meme any of our content," which is basically like ninety five percent of the internet at this point is memes. So I don't know what you're really doing if you're <laughs> you're not letting like it share like people share your content organically. And they were, it was weird, and it felt like I don't know about you guys, but it felt like they had all these big people, but it was the people who were pitching the ideas where it was like maybe their fifth idea or something like that, like their D or C level thing that they couldn't get made at some other place. And Quibi was like, Hey, we'll take it and chop it up in little bits <laughs> for our thing. I, I don't, it's, that's weird. I, I would like to watch some of the stuff on Quibi before it goes away. Cause I feel like, yeah, one of the big things is what, like what's going to happen with all this stuff. Is it just going to disappear? I think it's a really big question to ask. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have too much to say about Quibi just because it is Quibi, but um, I do feel bad for it. It's kind of sad. I remember when this thing launched, it was kind of anticlimactic, but they had a lot of a lot of push leading up to it. I was looking forward to it, and then I kind of just forgot about it, but uh, I think you're right, Nick. They need to do something with the content. Um, is there any contingency plan? of is, Are they just kind of shutting down pretty quickly, and no one's going to be able to access it, or how's that going to work? So from what I've seen, it's officially shutting down on December 1st. Um, and then they've so, – so before they announced the shutdown, they were looking at who can we sell to. And I think some of those options are still on the table. Yeah. I'm just not sure how the content would be restructured. Would it still be in these little 10-minute chokes or would 
Netflix get their editing team to, I almost said hack it up, but almost like Frankenstein it together um, and just put, you know, four of these Quibi episodes into an actual Netflix sized episode or, or what would that look like um, remains to be seen. Yeah. And there's, there's the one thing that I was interested in checking out and maybe I will before Quibi goes away is that wireless show that I think it was executive produced by Steven Soderbergh and Ty Sheridan stars in it. And it's Ty Sheridan's just trapped. I think it's like he's on the side of a mountain or something like that. And depending on which way you have your phone, you can see like what he's texting or what, like he's trying to like message like first responders or things like that. Or like you can just watch, you turn it landscape and you just watch what's happening on the screen. And I don't know. Like, I feel like Soderbergh is one of those guys who's just always at the forefront of like, yeah, I want to try this new thing. Like he tried to reinvent how movies are distributed for Logan Lucky and also Unsane. And he's just like, yeah, I want to try this, these new things. So every time he gets involved with something new, I I'm intrigued. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what you do if you try to ship this over to like Netflix. Cause it's not like Netflix isn't engineered to do like have stuff on their phone like this. So would they do like a split screen where you can sh- like for the wireless thing so you can show what, what are happening on both sides of this? Um, I don't really know. It's this weird thing. And, but it's also, I think it's a result of kind of like one of the bigger issues with streaming right now is like all these big studios are pretty selective about what they put on there. Like you won't find entire libraries of things. And there's a bunch of Disney stuff that isn't on Disney plus, And there's going to be a lot of stuff that kind of just falls through the cracks. And um, maybe I don't like a lot of what could be shows. Cause I am going to try to watch some of the stuff on here before it goes away. But I don't know, like the fa- the idea of these things just kind of disappearing, I, I don't think is particularly great. And I think that sets a, Maybe it doesn't set a precedent, but it kind of sets a trend for what other studios can do if things start to go bad. Um, I don't know. It's Quibi's weird. It's very, very weird. But I wish there was a better, it had a better plan in place because I think there was probably something interesting they could have done with it. Yeah, and I think this will help address a concern that a lot of industry people have had about streaming services because we have, I mean, we really haven't seen an original streaming platform with original content of its own flop like this. Um, So the question for a long time has been, well, what happens to something like The Irishman or Marriage Story or really any of Netflix's original content if Netflix goes belly up? Um, Like, does it just disappear forever? And I mean, most of their content doesn't get a physical release, so is it just gone? And then, you know, 100 years from now, somebody will find a film reel of it in their attic, like they do with all the movies from the 19-teens. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch unfold, because we really don't know what happens to content in the age of streaming when it's no longer on its original platform. And it's weird, too, because... Quibi was what, like the last streaming service to enter the market realistically in terms of what was considered like the quote unquote big streaming services. Like it came after HBO Max and all these other things. Uh, and now it's the first to go, which that's just a bummer to think about. But uh, this is definitely the first of many. Like there's still way too many streaming services. I We talked about Peacock when it first came out. I haven't even thought about using Peacock since. Um, I use HBO Max, Netflix, Criterion Channel. Um, but there all there is a bunch of these bunch bunch of these things out there, and it, it's only a matter of time before 
big someone like a big tech firm like Apple bundles a thing a couple things together to save them or couple of these group up and then other things fall through the craps the cracks i don't know it's it's so bizarre and i think we are still i think a lot of people have talked about how we're still in the the wild wild west of streaming but i think that yeah this is a big issue that i think a lot of people need to start thinking about yeah it's weird um but yeah quibi i mean let's uh pour one up for quibi though i think we have to <laughs> i yeah. will try to watch a few of their stuff i don't know <laughs> it's I've spent so much time dunking on Quibi that I would like to actually see what it's about before it leaves. Because, I don't know, some people I appreciate actually think, like, hey, it's not the worst thing in the world. So, I don't know. Like, I won't sign up for a service where, like, one of your big shows is Anna Kendrick hanging out with a with a sex doll, basically. But <laughs> that's interesting. Like, I would be intrigued in seeing that if I can watch that in a free trial period. So, I don't know. I, I feel bad for... A lot of artists who make things and then it just kind of goes out in the world and then it maybe in terms of could be it disappears and there was definitely some thought put into them um i don't know it's very very strange i i i feel like i forget who said this um either on twitter or just the journalism at large so i can't credit them but it would have been interesting to see if Kubi was like some kind of studio like from the start they were at Netflix and said like, yeah, we're going to make these little bite-sized episodes for Netflix, but instead they wanted to be their own app and their own entire thing. And I don't know. It just feels like we didn't really need this, even if they did have some actually really good ideas. Yeah. I heard their, um, not quite a remake, but like their live action rendition of the princess bride where they had just like five different actors playing one character and they'd each do like one little quibby episode. Uh, was really good so i'm interested to check that out in its entirety if it you know sees the light of day ever again yeah i think there's definitely some good stuff there and while it is really fun to make fun of quibi because first of all their name is quibi and that's just it's really silly sounding but yeah and they came in jeffrey katzenberg is doing is doing all these things about how they're gonna be a big deal and then as soon as they don't do well he just blames the the pandemic <laughs> it's like well that's not quite how it works, guy. You're you're leading once again with uh, a show with Anna Kendrick and a sex doll. So that's like your big thing. <laughs> so let's relax a little bit. But yeah, it's I feel a little bad for people involved, but I don't know. I think Katzenberg will kind of will kind of go away pretty free from this and be able to do whatever he wants next. But I hope this gets figured out because I don't want these things to go away for good. Yeah, I mean, out of katzenberg's three big ventures which is like basically reviving disney from the dead after walt disney died with the movies of the 80s and 90s um and then like starting dreamworks this is like his first failure at least on that stage so yeah i mean katzenberg's not going away anytime soon yeah it is kind of crazy though this movie this could be lost so much money so fast they were what two billion dollars was their invest investment property or something like that it's just <laughs> they in two quarters they got rid of all of that which is just such an amazing business blunder it's just it's so so bad it'll be it'll be looked at for years to come in terms of just uh the market and how not to go about things yeah and i mean it had investors from like all the major studios all the major like tv production houses like people had money banking on this um, and I saw an article that was just kind of equating Quibi's failure to the fact that the older generation 
doesn't fully understand why the younger generation likes cell phones. <laughs> and so it was talking about how, you know, like a, a kid in particular, right? They go and watch YouTube on their mom or their dad's phone. And it's like the understanding that the old people have is like these kids in their phones these days. What, what if we had a little quibby for them? Um, <laughs> whereas like the reality of it is like, especially teenagers and kids that have their own phone, like that's the only screen in the house that is uniquely theirs. So yeah, most of the time they'd much rather watch YouTube on the television or the computer, but like that is something that is theirs and theirs alone. And so they go and watch like PewDiePie for 30 hours on YouTube or like watch <laughs> Minecraft tutorials. Um, and it's just like <laughs> such a misunderstanding of like your target audience that watches things on their phone is not watching things because they're just starving for good content. Like a 12-year-old a does not care whether or not Chrissy Teigen has her own Judge Judy show. Um, <laughs> a 12-year-old just wants to watch things on YouTube because they have an hour to themselves in their own little screen that nobody else can have a say in. Yeah, it's true. Like they don't care that you spent whatever. I don't know how much they spent on it, but a lot, a lot of millions of dollars on a remake of the most dangerous game with Christoph Waltz. You know, <laughs> like right, like people want to watch. Um, unboxing videos, reactions to things, just other other uh, video essays and things like that. Like, I don't know, maybe we get to the point where YouTube Premium buys all of Quibi's stuff because I feel like, yeah, like that was their Quibi was kind of going after their lane, so maybe they can figure out something to do with it. But um, yeah, it's it see it was a flawed idea, and I, I I really cannot stress enough how bad of an idea I think it was that they kind of kept everything so private because so much stuff the way that it. it spreads is through twitter now people going nuts and screen grabbing things and them being so adamant and not doing that i think it was just such a stupid move especially for something that is was the last entrant into the marketplace that's just it's bad business um it's just bad marketing um so it's it's really just could be strikes me more of, i mean yeah you didn't have your like your crazy good premium content going on there but it really strikes me as just an awful business blunder first yeah and i think like even speaking of youtube tv like they've just quietly shuttered um like all their youtube premium original content too which is why like uh cobra kai which has kind of been their biggest program is now a netflix original uh, oh yeah that's right make the premium switch yeah it's i don't know i maybe someone comes around and figure something out how to do with it's like Quibi fell or walked so someone else could run something like that whatever that whatever that phrase is maybe that's what happens because I do think there is a good idea in here somewhere but yeah they I feel like they had every opportunity with all the money they had and they just couldn't get it come together so hopefully someone someone buys all the content so it doesn't disappear and then we can watch all the oddities that Quibi used to have on other platforms yeah um preferably on a big screen if they can ever figure out that transition but I, I won't be too picky i know they don't have a ton of money to to put into that switch now <laughs> um so let's let's move on to another streaming service that is just constantly ridiculously in debt um and that is netflix the king of original <laughs> content um so for the top 10 this week uh, pretty good mix I, I gotta say so over the moon which is a netflix original um, in the number one spot, Rebecca. In the number two spot, Hubie Halloween. In the number three spot, 
Um, yes, God, yes, in the number four spot, uh, as it was not released on Netflix, but has since moved to it this weekend. Uh, Paranorman at number five. Tremors, Shrieker Island at number six. Cadaver at number seven. The Grinch at number eight. Trial of the Chicago 7 at number 9, and The Secret Life of Pets 2 at number 10. Um, so it's a, I'd say this is probably like one of the better spreads we've seen of the Netflix top 10. Like normally it's very centered on whatever came out latest, uh, which I mean this still is for the most part. Um, but we still have our Illumination Studios representation. We got Paranorman coming in. Uh, for Halloween Tremors, which I think is like both being somewhat new and um, being a Netflix original coming in. So uh, can't complain much about the Netflix top 10, to be honest. Colin, it's the time the world's been waiting for. <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts on Hubie Halloween? Um, you know, I really liked the part where Hubie uh, was doing the Halloween stuff. <laughs> And it just really spoke to me when when Adam Sandler's friend showed up. And just let us down. Yeah, I'm just getting too emotional. I don't I don't know if I can can, can talk about how this movie. Affects All right, me. then we'll 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 check back with you next week after you mm-hmm. compose yourself, just to Same make sure that you can you can have your thoughts all in a line here. <laughs> It's still holding in strong at number three, though. It's uh, the the power of Sandler is is clear. Back to back weeks at one, and now it's at three. Good old Hubie, gotta love it. Yeah, it it has some legs. Um, it's sticking in there. And then Over the Moon uh, was one of their new releases as well, um, which the poster just screamed like, "We want you to think this is a Disney movie." <laughs> um, when I saw it on netflix uh the other day when i was looking for things to watch obviously looking for hubie halloween <laughs> um but they i mean it seems like a solid play for netflix because honestly we see how many kids movies are just constantly in the top 10 i mean we make the joke about um the illumination movies just always being present but i think like kids movies and just animation in general is a good place for netflix to really establish themselves because it just stays in forever i mean parents are always just throwing on random stuff for their kids to watch and so i think it's a good draw even if i don't think anybody's really going to talk about over the moon for too long um it's at least a good reliable um original for netflix to make yeah, I feel like the the algorithm, the Netflix algorithm, eventually it's going to be two things. It's going to be true crime and animated movies. That's going to be it. That's all Netflix is going to be in like 2025. But yeah, I agree. They have had, they've had a few because obviously all these studios still have their animation arms. And it seems like even in a COVID world, the one thing that does, still does really well are animated movies with Trolls, the most important movie of the year, and um, just everything else that's come out. But they Netflix is in that weird in that interesting zone where they kind of they're picking up maybe not the scraps but they're picking up these different uh, animated movies that are off off the beaten path a little bit and so some other things are just not very good but then you get some really really interesting movies like I'm thinking of um, I lost my body last year which was terrific terrific animated movie out of France and then um, you had Klaus which immediately became a Christmas classic for me I really love that movie 
Um, but yeah, I'm, yeah, like I, like I said, I don't think people are going to be talking a lot about Over on the Moon, but it's a smart business play for them. Yeah, and I mean, I will say it's pretty impressive because they got Glenn Keane um, t- to be a massive role in this movie. I believe he's the director, um, but he is one of Disney's bigger animators from the 80s and 90s and kind of that Renaissance era. Um, so I think like I can't remember which characters he animated specifically, but like the Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, um, he was heavily involved with a lot of those productions. So it's definitely got some talent to it. And then in Hollywood's um, never ending appeal to or never ending attempt to appeal to China, um, this is a character that I believe is or the film, I believe, is set in China as well. So it should play well with their international audiences. And that is over the moon. Um, not really a ton to say there. <laughs> um, but then Rebecca was another uh, new release that is in the top 10 this week as well, uh, which it is a remake of a film from the 1940s, I believe. I, I could be wrong, but it is an older film. Um, and I have not seen it, but if uh, you guys want to comment on it a little bit. Yeah, it's the uh, the original 1940, right on the dot, an Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock classic which uh, a lot of people consider one of his best movies. And I don't quite think of it that way, but I there's a lot of influences on the stuff of his that I really, really like. Like in the the original Rebecca, there's a ton of vertigo in that movie. And then also just he has brings a lot of his twisted sentimentalities to it that you see in a lot of that are sprinkled throughout the rest of his films in terms of relationships and just like a dark, uh, just under, underbody, just bubbling up to the surface. It's a really good movie and I actually checked it out for the first time this time this week too. So that's probably the only good thing I can say that for the reason that there is <laughs> the existence of a new Rebecca, because it made me watch the original because this new one is a giant turd. <laughs> it's oh, no. really, it is really bad. Um, it's, it makes every, the most obvious like choice at every turn. So there's a really good example of this. So in the in the original movie, when um, after uh, Maxim de Winter and um, Joan Fontaine, I forget her character's name, but uh, Lawrence Olivier and Joan Fontaine, when they go back to the big Mandalay estate, there's a big rainstorm that comes and it just showers down on them as they have the convertible top back. And it's like, oh yes, foreshadowing. Things bad things will happen as they're preparing on their wonderful entrance what was supposed to be wonderful entrance to the to the estate and in this movie it does not rain um they come up to the the front of the house it's all wonderful and there's like a cute cutesy little like little bit of shower as they're about to go inside um as like a oh this is so hilarious when our we're in our new home together aren't we so happy um and like just little moments like that it just kind of shows that they don't really or the director ben wheatley i don't think has a strong grasp on like the ideas in this movie, everything is very superficial on the surface. Um, and I don't think the acting, I mean, Army Hammer and Lily James are both delightful, but I just don't think they're giving a lot, they're given a lot to work with here. And they're just kind of stranded doing kind of just not great work, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a real bummer. It's a slog to sit through and it's just not particularly good and uninteresting to me. Um, I would just go back and watch the Hitchcock movie because it's really good. And this one isn't. <laughs> um, just because this is kind of high profile in terms of 2020 releases, I will watch it pretty soon. But I think I'll probably be in the same boat as you if I don't enjoy this. The good thing about it is that I will be checking out 
Alfred Hitchcock's for the first time as well. Yeah, it's and it's it's one of those remakes where it doesn't it doesn't tell the original story beat by beat, and there's a few changes in there, and it switches the ending around a little bit too. But all those changes, because it's it's a pretty on the surface movie, and it doesn't have a lot of those really just devilishly good um, subtextual elements that a lot of Hitchcock movies have, and especially Rebecca, that a lot of its changes just kind of just seem like they just were doing making changes just to have changes so that people weren't saying hey this movie is exactly the same as the original because they don't really add anything new um and they're not really interesting they don't really add anything different to here it's not there's not a particularly different spin on everything it's just it's in color so it looks nice i guess (laughs) even though the black and white cinematography is incredible in the in the original but it looks it's pretty to look at there's some pretty people on the screen but um yeah, it's just it's just kind of a dud. It's 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 sort of there, and those are the especially with remakes of the movies that I just really cannot stand. It's just it it, it bothered me. It's kind of funny too because so the director Ben Wheatley he did a movie a few years ago that I I liked quite a bit. It's uh, called Free Fire, and it's basically just a, a shoot 'em up movie that's in an abandoned warehouse with like Brie Larson and Army Hammer and Charlton Copley is in there too, and um, it's a really really funny movie and it's just the shoot of their they're like passing off they're doing like a trade and it goes wrong and so it's people shooting at each other for 90 minutes and it's really funny because they're just like just crawling on the ground and just like yelling fuck because they're like on like they accidentally crawl over glass and stuff and it's really funny and it's a really really good movie but it's weird because it was also announced that ben wheatley is gonna do he's gonna direct the second meg movie after this <laughs> yeah. um so it's like one of these things is not like the other <laughs> just like it he just doesn't seem like a good match for this uh, kind of story i think he's a good director i just don't quite see what like why he is doing this movie it, it doesn't seem like a good fit and i think the end product bears that out so <laughs> um yeah it's it's just a weird one it doesn't re- really quite work for me yeah, um, this this movie's here. <laughs> I don't it really, really is, even if you haven't with. seen it. It's just there. <laughs> um, then other than that, um, it's nice to see Yes, God, Yes um, on the Netflix Top 10. Um, I checked it out probably about a month and a half ago when it released uh, via uh, regular video on demand. So it's nice to see it um, getting some more momentum now that it's on Netflix yeah, this is a good movie. I really, really love this movie. I wrote a review for it when it first came out. Um, I, as someone who went to one of these Catholic retreats, um, as a good Catholic boy that I am, uh, <laughs> it's it spoke a lot to me, and I think for people with similar experiences, and just generally who are people who come into contact with religion or have a religion as somewhat part of their life, or maybe not at all. I think it's actually a really interesting movie and can say, says a lot, and it's really, really funny. And Natalia Dyer is, is really great in it. So, yeah, I recommend people check that out instead of Rebecca. Yeah. And then unless you guys want to talk about uh, Tremors, Shrieker Island. <laughs> How many uh, Tremor movies are there at this point? I believe <laughs> there like this 15? is six or seven. Um, so it is quite a bit. And I know, yes. uh, like, wasn't it Kevin Bacon was like one of the stars of the first one? Um, and that was 30 years ago. <laughs> That's just they, just keep, they just keep churning them out. People yeah. like Tremors. Uh, so this is, in fact, Tremors 7. 
Good God. Good for them. They they know their audience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like Terminator in the sense that, like, every five to six years, they're like, you know what? We haven't made one of those in a while. And then they just pop one out. It's weird because I'm pretty sure they're still in the original timeline of that. Like, it's still members of the same cast coming back, too. But, yeah, it's it's kind of weird that those are still a thing. Yeah, it's uh, it. it it's a thing. Um, <laughs> much like Rebecca, this movie is here. It is. Uh, <laughs> it exists. No one can change that. Um, so that is the Netflix top 10. Um, but Amazon was, I'd say, definitely making some more waves uh, with its original release uh, this past week. Uh, so Borat, subsequent movie film. I won't say the full title because it's extremely long and I can't memorize all the words. Um, came out uh, this past week after being rumored for about the last year and a half and then being confirmed a little over a month ago Um, and man uh, what a movie so I watched both Borats for the first time this week and I'd always been peripherally familiar with Borat Um, it was a big movie uh, for my brother because he he was a teenager when it came out Um, so that kind of thing was just massive way back in yield 2006 uh, but I, I never really had gotten an interest in it um, and so when I saw the new one was coming out this week I was like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna check out the original Borat and I stand both of them um, I I think Borat subsequent movie film is the better movie um, because the like the whole gimmick of the basically mockumentary style of filming people that don't know they're in a movie i feel like is just a little dated in the internet era um and like being an eric andre fan and uh billy eichner and seeing billy on the street like it just doesn't feel like it has the edge that it probably did in 2006 and it didn't feel as relevant whereas borat a subsequent movie film is just (laughs) largely relevant to all the chaos that is 2020 um, and I think it does have a bit of a tighter story between Borat and his uh, daughter. It is really funny, um, just how many, how much these two movies hate America, and it kind of, it's pretty funny. Like it's almost like it was like the perfect time for a Borat movie to come out, just given everything going on. But yeah, I really, I really like the second one. It's really funny. Uh, I also really like the first one too. Um, but it is really funny to think about just how big of a deal the first Borat was like everyone knows like very nice and uh, this is my (laughs) wife and all that stuff like it's it's so funny how just this little mockumentary broke through and became such a big deal that um that it became I think a lot of that was because people were just kind of taking it as face value uh, at face value for all like the shock uh just like jokes in it and whatnot but both of these movies are just really good uh satires and I think I I disagree a little bit. I think the thing of seeing people uh, who don't know they're in a movie just say like outrageous things or just not even respond that much to Borat when he says absurd things, I still think holds a lot of value. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> there's there's some bits in the second one that were uh, just tremendous, just chef's kiss. I. Uh... I am much more like the first one. Um, I, I do agree with you, Colin, that there's a tighter story here, 100%. Um, but I just, like, one thing that I kind of point to is 
the first one, I remember like tearing up laughing. That never happened with the sequel. Um, uh, but no, that first one is crazy. This one's good too, but there are, there, there's something about this one that for me, I don't know if like Nick, you probably watched the first one a while back um, for the first time with you calling it's a little different since you watched them like this past week. But I felt this one didn't feel as authentic. Yeah, I think that's true too, in, in a sense, because I think this is this movie's still weirdly tame if you compare it to the first one, because there's just like mm-hmm. there's a lot of scatological stuff going on in that first one that <laughs> I want to forget, but it was really really funny. Um, it's just yeah, it's really tamer, um, I mean, and yet and it's but uh, yeah, I I still think given everything going on, I think it was it, it's very very worthwhile. It is, it yeah. is, and you know what, uh, just. Before I let you jump in there, Colin, again, um, I think one thing that also was a little different for me and what I really appreciate about the first one is there are only four actors in that first movie. Um, whereas, I don't know, with this one, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like there were a ton. Yeah, it definitely felt like there were more people that could definitely have been in on the joke. Um, and I've seen, uh, we can probably touch on it a little bit more in a minute, but like there's been some backlash to quite a few different scenes in the movie. <laughs> Um, and one of them was alleging that this the scene that takes place at a bakery um, that that it was more staged than it appears, and so the Borat um, asks the the baker to to put on uh, it, it's something derogative about Jews. I can't remember what specific. Oh, it's like Jews will not replace us on the cake, and the woman just like <laughs> oh goes God. out. And so. Um, I've seen a lot of backlash on the internet where people are like, you know what, I know this store, like she's getting a lot of hatred right now, but they rented it out for the day and we're like, we're going to do this for the movie. Um, so there's, there's definitely a lot more questionability to like how much was real and how much was staged. And I think like the other issue is that with this movie, um, and you see it at the beginning of this film and then, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's talked about it in interviews is that he really had to be Borat playing other characters yeah. because just coming out as Borat, I mean, so many people were recognizing him and I mean, people have been talking about this movie for years and wondering when it's going to happen. Like what's it going to look like? And so as soon as he steps out into a street, even if he's just in Galveston, Galveston, Texas um, with the mustache, people were just flocking and, and really ruining the anonymity to it. Yeah, I like seeing all the different uh, caution or portrayals he had to do to pull off this. I I agree with you though. I think it it's tough because the first one, um, like in comparison, I just feel like there's a, a little bit more um, cheesy to say this, but I do use it a lot and I do believe in this truly when it comes to movies. But I think there's more magic in that first one, um, and kind of the magic of this is just someone that literally like like they really do they have no idea who this guy is like this, like Borat is a real person to these people that he's interacting with. Whereas obviously in this one, I think that the twist of him having to take on other roles was definitely a fresh, it was definitely a fresh, uh, a fresh feel. But with that Baker scene and with some of the other scenes, it didn't feel as smooth to me as everything that happened in the, in the first Borat. Um, but it was still a hundred percent worthwhile and I loved watching it. Uh, my favorite part of the film, I don't know if we're going to get into the spoilers. You can let me know after I say it. I'm not going to say the spoiler, but the ending, like the last like 10 minutes or so, <laughs> things, things, came to, things came together. Things came together quite well at the end. 
Yeah, um, pouring out for uh, Rudy Giuliani, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's something. What's going on with that one? But yeah, it's it is uh, interesting because yeah, definitely some of this stuff is is a little more staged this time around. Um, but there are some moments like where he's the the country singer. Like, what is he country? <laughs> is he country Steve? Is that what they call him? Yeah. Um, and he's singing um, about the Wuhan flu up on stage. And there's some of that stuff that just seems very authentic to me. Um, but yeah, there's some stuff like that is probably staged in all this. But um, I, I think, yeah, even if it is staged, I think it does still hold a lot of merit because I think uh, I just think Borat should come back like every so often. Every time we need a little jolt in the system, I think he's just a really good, like a really goofy character to spring all this stuff on um on other people and if he has to get in more crazy disguises over and over again then by all means do it <laughs> it's like zombie land you know just every 10 years if they just reunite and just put something out there i'm all i'm here for it yeah um i also just going back to the first one there this thing this sequel here is probably not going to catch on with awards like the first one did. But the first one was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Sasha Baron Cohen won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy. So that first one <laughs> that first one really was a big deal. And there was a lot of people that were upset when he missed out on a Best Actor nomination. I mean, he still got nominated for the screenplay at the Oscars. But I don't think this will catch on quite like that one um, in terms of that uh, area. But, I mean, this is a big deal, right? And um, there, there are a lot of pretty funny moments in here um for me though i i i will defend the first one i think that's that's the better one but i will uh agree with you colin that there is a, definitely a tighter a tighter story in here especially when it comes to uh, the relationship with his daughter yeah and there's been a big push on film twitter to get uh, Maria Bakalova, who plays his daughter in the movie nominated for best actress <laughs> <laughs> she was good because she really does a terrific job um, in this movie, um, just like having to basically match uh, Cohen's like authenticity in the moment mm -hmm. um, for these things and, and just match his energy. And I mean, she just steals the show, uh, particularly uh, towards the Rudy, Rudy Giuliani portion of the movie, uh, <laughs> which like that was just a whole thing in itself, because that um, sequence of the film really broke about three days before the movie came out um, because it like early reviewers saw it and were like, of course I'm going to spoil kind of the biggest gotcha moment in the movie on Twitter. Yeah. But um, I think it's drum up some more intrigue for the movie too. Yeah. I, I definitely think it ends up playing in the movie's favor mm -hmm. um, because it does just generate a lot more interest and, and like onlookers on the outside are I think more curious because this big, um, gotcha moment does play out, um, which obviously it's going to be contested pretty heavily already is. I'm not going to be surprised when, uh, Cohen or somebody gets sued over this. Um, uh, but it is just, <laughs> it's, it's horrifying and hilarious to watch it play out in the actual movie. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something it's one. <laughs> I can't even put words to it, but it's, it's crazy. And even that, and the um the thing that got me a lot too <laughs> was when he 
um, barges into the CPAC convention. Oh, <laughs> and God. just Mike Pence's reaction to him is, I don't even know, if that might. I wonder if that's trick photography too. I don't really know, but it, it looked pretty authentic to me. That happened. That happened. It just, it looked so funny. It just, because regardless of your political leadings, it's just like Mike Pence just seems like a robot to me. Like he just yeah. never. He just never reacts as a human does. So seeing him like slightly break, I I thought was it, it really wrecked me. I thought it was so funny. Um, one of the more impressive moments in this movie that doesn't seem impressive just because of how it played out, but I read a lot more into it was when he he uh, he stayed with the two guys for a few days in quarantine, um, and. He said that was the hardest acting he's ever done because he, he couldn't break character for days. So that's that's pretty impressive because at first when I watched it, I'm like, how is he living with these dudes? Like this has to be one of the parts of the film that are staged. But uh, no, he really pulled it off and that's got to be difficult. Yeah, there was a few things I was thinking about through that, that scene where it was like, one, I'm just horrified for the state of the world if <laughs> these kind of people are out there just being like, oh, yeah, Democrats are like the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and then the second part where it's like, wow, like they don't know who Borat is and he's just they're just letting him do whatever. <laughs> they're going looking for QAnon stories together. It's <laughs> Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing, and then there's the whole montage in there. It's and he's hitting the virus with the with a frying pan. <laughs> if he, uh, it's amazing. What would have been funny? I mean, this would never happen, just coincidence wise. But it'd be it'd be great if they were chilling in there, and somehow they uh, saw Borat on the internet or something, and uh, <laughs> while he's living with them. <laughs> uh, yeah, even that like. It's amazing how much of this they were able to keep pretty under wraps. Because um, even like with the the whole thing at CPAC, um, like that was a fairly decent sized news story that like somebody dressed up as Donald Trump <laughs> ran into the rally with a woman over their shoulder, um, <laughs> and like nobody was able to really connect those dots until a month ago when it was in the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like especially the whole thing with Rudy Giuliani, like. I mean, his fake daughter was able to impersonate an actual journalist and get, get an interview with the attorney to the president, um, like during the time when he's being impeached, um, and that's just <laughs> impressive. There, are, there are some funny, funny things that Sasha Baron Cohen's been able to do, and some very high up people he's been able to get to. But that's definitely one of the, uh, one of the peak ones. Yeah, and uh, I, think, I think Trump responded to – didn't Trump respond to Sasha Baron Cohen? He called him he's just like a weirdo. I can't remember what he said. He's yeah. like, oh, he's just a creep or something. And I'm like, ah, it's, that just makes it better. <laughs> Originally, uh, both Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. were in the film, but they had to cut their scenes. Uh, yeah. Sad. That would have been amazing. Um, uh, Rudy was tweeting about how um, he was so proud that he didn't get – caught by Sasha Baron Cohen. He said, so many other people have been goofed by him and I uh, beat him. <laughs> what? <laughs> he, he said that. I'm like, uh, that's yeah. amazing. I'm like, what okay. an incredible spin. <laughs> He's like, so yeah. many others in my, my position have been uh, goofed by this guy, but not me. <laughs> the thing is, like, I don't think it's really going to hinder Giuliani's career that much because Tons of stuff like that have come out about the current administration, and it's done nothing. Um, so I feel like he's always been a questionable dude as well. Yeah, I mean, like it's 
there's nothing that's like completely illegal that's happening but there's definitely it's very very questionable and there's not a lot of like oh well we can't tell exactly what giuliani was doing like everything's pretty obvious what's happening in that (laughs) hotel room uh but yeah unfortunately i don't think it's going to damage him for more than the weekly news cycle yeah and i think that's kind of what makes borat so good as a character because i think maybe there's there have been some people who say like is it a good idea to make fun of Kazakhstan in order to do this satire. And maybe that's a discussion to have. I think that's a worthy um, critique maybe, but just the fact that like, yeah, like Giuliani can probably get away with it. And the, the administration's done so many different things and just nothing's really happened. It just, it's to have uh, Sasha Baron Cohen come in, just basically just to like a bomb in the middle of the situation and just bring like ratchet the absurdity up to, an even higher degree than it already was. It's just, uh, it's it's so good. It's it's weirdly one of the few unifying things right now. It's like, yeah, Boreas is just great. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, to close out our Borat section, I will attempt to read off the entire title of this movie. <laughs> um, so th- those are all our thoughts on Borat's subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bride to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> one one little quick point. I, I forget if I said this on the show last week or not, but you got to go back and watch the uh, the uh, 2007 Oscars because the uh, lady who presented the nominees for Adapted Screenplay had to read out the entire title. And it's like, <laughs> Uh, what was the original one? It was uh, Borat. Oh no! It's yeah, don't long. even don't even try to do that off the top of your <laughs> but head. She had to read it all in this like very professional Oscar-y voice. Absolutely hilarious. Borat: Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Exactly. <laughs> um, yes. So those are Borats. Um, <laughs> And then the other kind of big release this week, uh, streaming-wise, was Bad Hair, which dropped on Hulu. At least the only uh, other one we really want to dedicate a lot of time to, because uh, I have yet to hear anything nice about witches. Um, but Bad Hair is a movie uh, that's just like the title. It's about hair that is bad. Um, it's it's like, I don't want to get into too big of spoilers for it, uh, but it's basically like a demon-possessed weave. Um, and Nick and I caught this at Sundance, um, which was pretty cool. This was at least the last thing I saw. I don't believe it was the last movie you saw before the end of the festival, but it was it was part of our Sundance routine. And uh, now it's released supposedly with a different ending than the one that we saw in January. So I'm curious to check it out just to see what the shift was. Um, but at the very least, this movie was a really interesting concept, even if it hasn't stuck with me as much as some of the other movies I saw, even some of the other horror movies that I saw at the festival. But it's just like this really campy, bizarre, um, like mix between a slasher and a body horror film um, that I think works well enough for a late night B movie. Yeah, this was, I think. From my perspective, this is a good example of what uh, watching too many movies at Sundance can do to you. Because we saw this at a midnight showing. I was exhausted. <laughs> I was out of it. By the time, I don't even remember what happened at the end of this movie. I would need to watch it again. But apparently, I, I would have, I would be watching a different movie because they changed the ending. But um, before I could like give strong opinions on the movie itself. But <laughs> what I can remember, remember from when I was asleep or awake, I guess, um, is that this was 
and its first two acts are really good, uh, if very uneven. Um, just a good old like good old fashioned psychodrama that reminded me a lot of stuff from the seventies, and I think Justin Simeon said as much when he got up there and um, introduced the film beforehand. But yeah, a lot, lot to say about black culture. Obviously, the, the weave and his and hair. It's, it's a very interesting uh, topic that I think people will continue to discuss in black culture moving forward. But I think this is an interesting addition to that. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff that. Uh, for I'm, there's a few things when they're uh, showing that the the hair going like they're putting the hair in the lead actress. It's it just looks really painful and it, the 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 sound design is really really good. That's one of the few things I remember from it. But yeah, I want to I want to check this out and see what changed and get a stronger opinion on it. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious. Um, for what I understand, um, and we talked about this a little bit before we hopped on, but was that uh, they changed this movie um, in the way that um, the original Little Shop of Hor- Horrors uh, from the 80s was changed, the original film adaptation, where it was like evil wins in the end and Audrey destroys the world, um, where they kind of lessened the ending of this so it wasn't as severe as uh, what we saw back in January was. Yeah, it's... um. It's definitely. I think Justin Simmons a really interesting guy, and he's obviously he's done Dear White People uh, for Netflix, and he's a really interesting voice. So, um, I think I would, I would implore people to check it out, even if I'm probably not the best person to say that since I fell asleep <laughs> during the middle of this movie. But um, for what I remember, it was really, really interesting. Yeah, um, so def- it's definitely one to check out, uh, definitely during the holiday season for Halloween um, while everything's still spooky. <laughs> it's definitely a good thing to like just pop some popcorn, 10 p.m., throw it on, enjoy yourself for a little bit. Um, and then there's also what we've been watching lately. Uh, so, Brennan, if you want to take it away with what you've seen this past week. Yeah, so it was pretty much a quiet week for me overall. I had a lot of things going on, but I did watch – a documentary covered the uh, 2016 World Series between the Chicago Cubs and the Cleveland Indians, which is probably the only time in a long time where baseball was the number one sport in the U.S. for a period of time because football has been dominant for a while, and there have been a few NBA finals that have been quite big as well. This was a big one, though, and ratings were like the highest they've had in over 30 years. It was kind of a national thing because the Cubs, they hadn't won in over 100 years, the World Series. Um, same with the Indians. They had not won since the 1940s. So combined, I think, in the doc, they kept saying 176 years of no titles uh, leading up to this. And it, obviously, it went all the way to a Game 7. It went to extra innings. Incredible game. I remember watching it. But I just kind of wanted to bring it up because it was a great doc. And what I loved about it was they didn't just kind of follow the games, but they explored the the culture of the team as well as how important it was for the city of Chicago and that fan base. And they always kind of connected it to the fact that they've been losing and they've been the lovable losers for so long. There was, there was such a generational following uh, with this World Series. You had people who were in their 70s and 80s who said, like, we can remember 1945 when the Cubs last made the World Series. They didn't win, obviously, but, and you had so many people who were just at game one crying and saying, we never thought this would happen. Like, my my grandfather never thought this would happen. Like, it, like it's, it's a generational thing. And I remember they had their, and they showed it at the end, and this was a pretty awe-inspiring moment in the documentary, but when they 
after the World Series ended and they won, um, there was the there was the big parade in Chicago, and it, I think still to this date it's the it's the largest human gathering in North American history. Um, millions and millions of people gathered for that parade. Um, pretty great stuff. But I also bring it up also as my movie this week because the World Series is going on this week, and uh, I'm from Canada, but I am a Dodgers fan, and we are probably going to lose our third World Series in four years. So uh, think about me. <laughs> think about me. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers for Brent. Um, I still remember um, one, one quick thing, that the ending of that World Series, because Game 7 was just crazy because you had the rain delay and the Cubs come back, and it was like it was like literally like the universe was trying yeah. to get the Cubs to win the World Series, and it's just it was amazing but yeah baseball it a, hasn't, hasn't been the same since you know it was a it, it's kind of a movie ending too like it truly was and even with i don't know if you remember the very last play you have the third baseman chris bryant he throws the ball to first to get the out and you see his foot slip too as he's throwing it and you're like and everyone in the dock was like oh like we're we saw that and we're like we're done it like we're cursed like he's about to throw this thing away throw the game away but he uh he got it done and it's uh, one of the one of the bigger moments in American sports history. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's crazy. I I remember just going nuts, and I I didn't care about either team. I didn't care about the Indians or the Cubs. <laughs> I have no affiliations, but it was just so cool. And you just yeah, you can imagine just sports are weird, and we go nuts for them. And I go nuts for Philadelphia sports, and I think way too much about the Eagles every Sunday when they lose. <laughs> um, it's just one of my many many flaws. But yeah, it's really cool to see just kind of the effect that that had on Chicago. Yeah, uh, baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, your thoughts. <laughs> I really like where the player's running to the base and then he <laughs> makes it or doesn't make it. Um, for me, that's that's my favorite part. Um, I've, I mean, I haven't seen a ton of stuff this week, but I had a pretty good spread. Uh, so I watched the 1958 version of Dracula the other day, which is, in my opinion, the best on-screen interpretation of Dracula. Um, and it's it's probably Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee's most well-known uh, collaboration that they did together. Um, so they collaborated something like 22 times over their careers, uh, mostly in horror movies. But when uh, Hammer Films and just really the British film industry really got into a lot of the classic monsters that Universal had done in the, the 20s and 30s. Um, Dracula was one of their biggest hits. And I mean, this 58 version of Dracula, just it slaps. Um, it's just solid. Like it's there's really good effects for 1958. Um, it's really just kind of blood curling and horrifying. And Christopher Lee is just always hanging on the edge of the frame, ready to kill somebody. Um, so it's it's a good time. I recommend it if you're still trying to find some stuff to watch for Halloween. Um, and then I diverted from my Halloween uh, Spooktoberfest and did Galaxy Quest last night, which is just phenomenal. Um, I forgot how much I love that movie. It's just an all-star cast like out there having a good time. They know they're being campy. Um, Alan Rickman is just hating his role in every scene in this wonderful. <laughs> um, I think it's easy to forget that like Tim Allen used to be one of the most like charismatic and charming actors back in the nineties. Um, and just like seeing him cheesing it up while he's being basically, uh, captain Kirk, uh, from star Trek is a good time. Sigourney Weaver who just like 
all her lines in this movie are just terrific. Like there's one point where she's yelling about the fact that her only job on the ship is that she repeats whatever the computer says. Um, and she just says, it's a dumb job, but it's mine. So I'm going to do it. And Sam Rockwell is just like crying and worrying about being killed the whole movie. Um, it's just phenomenal. Cannot recommend Galaxy Quest enough. I think that might be my favorite, my or my third favorite on Rickman performance. Because you have Snape, and then you have Hans Gruber, and then it's probably it's Rolling Galaxy Quest is next. He is so good in that. He just hates everything the entire time. It's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just such a good movie. And it's just it's lampooning just Star Trek and you know, I've I've never been a huge fan of Star Trek, but even at that, like it's just lampoons the culture around that kind of show on and off camera and just like the idea of being kind of a washed up celebrity and like, what do you do when the only thing you're worth is basically nostalgia. Um, and I think it's just like really relevant in that regard as well. Yeah, it's terrific. I haven't, I've never seen the, the 1958 Dracula, but I want to check that out too. I gotta, I gotta figure out my, uh, the rest of my uh, spoopy movie watching for the next week. I'm, I believe it's on HBO max. Um, I'm a purist, so I own it. Because uh, nobody, <laughs> if, if HBO Max disbands like Quibi, they're not going to be able to take away the horror of Dracula. I agree. I agree with you. <laughs> um. So yeah, I I took a trip into uh, pure poetry, I guess, this week with the World of Tomorrow shorts, which are quickly my favorite things. So um, these come from. And they're Don Hertzfeld, who um, re- I think released the first one in 2015. Uh, the second World Tomorrow Short came in 2017, and he just released the third one a few weeks ago. Um, so I took the time to watch all three of them, and they are just unbelievable. So I think the third one might be my favorite movie of the year, uh, as it stands right now, as we were recording this. Um, it is tremendous, and I guess to for people who haven't seen them um they're all on they're all on vimeo you can rent them all or, or buy them all for a couple dollars and they're just i couldn't recommend them enough but basically it starts with this idea that in the future we're just cloning people over and over again so the, the first one starts with this little girl um just like playing in this completely white room and so and all the people are stick figures so it's all these just stick figures walking around against like this amazing kaleidoscopic imagery that comes in but um she is voiced by don hertzfeld i think it's his baby niece and just she he just recorded her saying things when she was playing and cobbled together (laughs) voice stuff to make her character and she's just unbelievable in them and the shorts but she gets a call from the future from her third generation clone um, who, and in the future they don't really, they just clone new people or old people, I guess. So you go into the future and the future and there's like fourth and fifth generations of the same people. And like your brain is on these hard drives and just uploaded into different, con- uh, different consciousness. So it's just like this crazy hard sci-fi and it's um, just three shorts that just kind of, ruminate on life and time and basically just everything you can ever think of and it's just amazing because it's these stick figures that are just in these unbelievable landscapes and it's so funny um 
and just really, really deep. And there's there's one line that I that comes out of the third one where it's it says time is a prison of living things, and it's just like, well, that's I don't know what else to do with my life after that. <laughs> that's just unbelievably deep. And so that's all of these three shorts. But um, I don't really want to go into any really specifics of any of these because. Um, for one, they're really hard to explain because they're jumping back and forth in time and things happening in the future then happening before we meet up with Emily, the Emily, the kid in the first one, and it's jumping all around and things like that. But, um, yeah, I want people to experience these and just kind of go in and just kind of get swept up in it all. Cause they're, they're kind of the most amazing things. I really can't stress it enough. I think they're so great. So I hope people check them out. Yeah, they definitely sound really interesting and unique. I mean, they don't have Alan Rickman in them, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it is so crazy. It just it's just these stick figures, and they're just saying the most profound things ever. And afterwards, after you watch one, I think the first one is like sixty minutes. The second short's twenty two. I think the third one's over thirty minutes. But yeah, once you get to the end of those, you're just like, well, I don't really know what to do with my life anymore. Just it's just <laughs> I think I think these shorts just kind of said it all, <laughs> and they're also just really entertaining and really funny. Um, there's one, I guess I'll spoil this one thing. It's not really a spoiler, but um, in the third in the third short, the the lead character David, uh, he's he gets a transmission from a future Emily clone, like a couple years and or many many years into the future, um, but. His brain hard drive isn't doesn't have enough storage in it to download the whole the full message. So he has to constantly get rid of skills that he has to read the whole message and figure out and go on his quest. So at one point he has to uninstall his walking feature. So he's just crawling all around <laughs> on this crazy this otherworldly planet trying to figure out what this uh, uh, this clone is telling him. And it's all this crazy stuff where he's just oh my god it's it's so touching and it's so weirdly funny. Um, but yeah, if you haven't checked them out, I strongly recommend it. Cause I don't really know what could come, come by this year and beat the third one for me in terms of my favorite movies of the year. But um, yeah, they're really terrific. Nice. And that is the movie Bible podcast for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week talking about more movies. Uh, who knows? Maybe Borat 3 will have come out by then. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be over with spooky movies, so it should be a little bit of a different landscape. Uh, but remember, you can always check us out online at moviebabble.com. 